This is a Federal News Network podcast. The nonprofit MITRE Corporation has become the locus of an extensive research program in cybersecurity. Its Center for Threat Informed Defense has collaborated with more than a dozen companies to produce so far 13 reports, and these are freely available to anyone. Here with a progress report, the Center's Director for Research and Development, John Baker. Mr. Baker, good to have you on. Thanks for having me on, Tom. So tell us more about this program, MITRE well-known and does a lot of consulting directly with the federal government, but you are working with the players in industry to do what exactly? As you said, Tom, MITRE is a nonprofit that's been around for you know around 60 years, running federally funded research and development centers with the government. We saw an opportunity to create a new model, and you can think of it as a privately funded research and development center where what we did was we brought together some of the most sophisticated cybersecurity teams from around the world to identify hard problems. And then we built an engine that allows us to run research projects to solve those hard problems. When we're done, because we work in the public interest, we publish all the results of our R&D. And what are the grand challenges or what are the big problems that require research as opposed to just simply software development when it comes to cyber? You know, Tom, we tried to develop the center with a mission to advance threat-informed defense. And when we think about how to advance it, we want to both advance the state of the art and the state of the practice. And so, you know, to your question around the, the hard problems, we want to develop resources that are practical and can be used to solve problems today. We also want to have a balance of resources and research projects that are tackling things that are trying to advance the state of the art. So in that space of threat-informed defense... Our goal is to continually advance our knowledge and understanding of adversary behaviors. So what are attackers doing today? How are they achieving their goals? And then use that knowledge to systematically improve our defenses. And so what you end up with is sort of a feedback loop. As we get better at defending, we learn more. As we learn more, we identify defensive gaps and we can improve our defenses. And so you get this circle. So a lot of the research then is not so much on what you do about the threat necessarily as understanding the threat. Yeah. You know, actually, we have a good balance in our R&D program to date. As you mentioned, we released a 2021 impact report a couple of weeks ago now, and that report highlights 13 projects that we released in the first year or so of operating the Center for Threat Informed Defense. Some of those projects are specifically at helping us better understand, for example, how adversaries achieve their goals in cloud environments or how they use container technologies and how they attack container technologies. On the other hand, we also have a set of projects that are looking at it from the defender's perspective. Okay, given this set of threats and the set of behaviors that we've observed in cloud technologies, what are the security capabilities that are available to us to defend against those? And so we did a project that essentially maps the native security capabilities of Azure, and then we did one for AWS, and we're running one for the Google Cloud Platform back to the MITRE attack knowledge base, where we're trying to help people understand, for a given threat, how do I use the technologies in front of me today to defend against those threats? And what are some of the research methodologies you use, like, for example, to understand how someone is attacking containers? And that's a big issue because everybody's putting containers in the cloud, partly as a security measure, because you have various instances that can reproduce if some other instance is attacked cyber-wise. But if all the containers are contaminated, then you're kind of out of luck. So give us an example of how you go about this. 
The center's R&D engine was formed with this belief that if you brought these really sophisticated security teams together that saw that it was kind of in their own best interest to come together and collaborate on some of these problems, like understanding adversary behaviors, we could essentially lay a foundation for others to build upon and to innovate on top of. And so just to pick an example for you with One of our projects, we collaborated with our center participants and the MITRE attack team to end up creating what is now attack for containers. And so we worked sort of as a closed research team with our participants to understand their priorities and their concerns about attacks against container technologies. And then we actually wanted to go much broader. And so we ended up doing a community-wide call for inputs and leverage that to help us get a sense of the real world in the wild attacks against container technologies. One of the things that we've really tried to advance through our research program is this notion of really focusing on what adversaries are actually doing, simply because if you think about the whole universe of possible attacks, what adversaries might do or or could do, um, it's simply overwhelming. And so we try to focus ourselves on what has been done, and that then necessitates that call for community contributions and inputs. We're speaking with John Baker. He's Director of Research and Development at the MITRE Corporation's Center for Threat-Informed Defense. And we should talk a little bit about the ecosystem involved here, looking at some of the names that are names familiar to the federal government, Booz Allen Hamilton, CrowdStrike, Ernst & Young, the Google Cloud, uh, Microsoft, these are all you know, kind of household names, both commercially and for the federal agencies. Given the reports that are published, how do organizations, including agencies, best take advantage of them? So what's interesting about the center and one of the goals that we had when we established the center is that, you know, a lot of these problems, these challenges that we're identifying and then tackling as research projects, they're not just specific to our private sector participants, right? These are broad problems that are shared by private sector and the public sector and globally and across sectors. So I mentioned that project around furthering our understanding of adversary behaviors against container technologies. Well, everybody uses container technologies. By us conducting that research project, And then working with the MITRE attack team to have that published, we've now made that resource freely available to everyone. Government and industry is now free to use that and leverage it in their threat modeling activities and their work as they think about how to defend container technologies in that example. I mentioned some of the work we've done to map security technologies to the threats that they defend against. Very same thing. And I know firsthand that that same kind of work happens across government every day. In the center, one of the things that we can do, I mentioned trying to develop and provide practical resources that can be used today, is simply create well-understood, well-defined resources that everybody else can build off of so they don't have to do that work. Once we mapped Azure to the techniques that defends an attack, you shouldn't have to do that again. So everybody can now build upon that and leverage that resource. It sounds like this could have applications in a lot of federal programs. I'm thinking of NIST publication 800-53, kind of the Bible for software controls, and they're always updating it. I think we're on version four or five now over the years. Do you think that some of the research that you have produced could affect the next version of something like 800-53? Perhaps they could, Tom. Um, You mentioned 853, which I think is is a great example. I'm glad you brought that one up. 
One of our very first research projects in the center was just tackling this problem that so many organizations had. As you said, everybody uses NIST 853, and teams are trying to understand how the security controls in NIST 853 help them defend against real-world attacks. So what that meant was lots and lots of teams all over the world trying to do this study and analysis on their own. And so what we did is we worked with our center participants to do that analysis and produce a mapping of 853 controls to MITRE ATT&CK, allowing you as a user to understand for a given control in 853, what techniques or what adversary behaviors does that control mitigate, right? And so there's another example of where we provided this foundational resource. So that analysis is subjective. And to make a really subjective analysis useful for others, it's important that you document it. So we developed a methodology and a rubric and tools to support it. So our goal there is to make it as easy as possible for users around the world that are thinking about 853 compliance, thinking about the set of threats they care about to understand how to bring those two together. And you should be talking to the Cybersecurity Certification Maturity Model Certification Program, or CMMC. They'd probably want to hear about this, too. All right, so you've been at this a couple of years, 13 reports, a couple dozen companies, and some of the nonprofit associations involved. What will you do next? What's on the agenda coming up? As I mentioned earlier, we built this engine in the center's research program. And we brought these sophisticated security teams together from around the world to identify hard problems. Since we published the report, we've actually published a couple of new research projects. Last week, we released a new project that is aimed at building out a knowledge base of insider threat tactics and techniques and procedures. Our goal there is to help security teams, those that are sitting in a SOC, understand the set of behaviors that insiders might use in a way that we've done very similar to building out a knowledge base of traditional cyber threats. And so in that case, it's a first draft of that work. We're working to bring the community together to further our, really our broad community understanding of how insiders achieve their goals and what you might see in an IT environment. Actually, just yesterday, we released another project too. That one's been a couple of years in the making. Our vision with this project called the Sightings Ecosystem is to provide defenders with real-world data and insight into how adversaries are achieving their goals today and allow us to see that and see how that changes over time. So the Sightings Ecosystem project is based on community data contributions where events are correlated to MITRE ATT&CK techniques. We bring in that data anonymize it and analyze it and produce reporting on top of that data to show people what are the most prevalent attacks today? What set of techniques might you see next to each other? So what might be step one and step two in a given attack to help us develop much more sophisticated defenses, to help us focus our defensive efforts? In the research program, as I mentioned earlier, you know, we're really focused on continually advancing that understanding of adversary behaviors and then working together to improve our defensive capabilities. So along those lines, we have research themes that are tackling hard problems in cyber threat intelligence and test and evaluation and detection and uh, security engineering. Sounds like a heavy workload got ahead here. John Baker is Director of Research and Development at the MITRE Corporation's Center for Threat-Informed Defense. Thanks so much for joining me. Yeah, thanks for having me on today, Tom. 
We'll post this interview along with a link to the research summary at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Hello and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. And today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley, the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome and thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader? And what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, The first person personally was my mom. Uh, She was a single parent. And what I realized is that she was the leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, She was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education. She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, We were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing, we were in regular housing, the people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while although we were the little guy. Uh, and then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks. Um, as part of her job, she worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then cleaned houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, so that was probably the, the first leader. And then I would say the second leader that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal, Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, I quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and obviously seeking a job, she would always manage to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right, to try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? I would describe it hashtag work in progress. Um, It it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, uh, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my 
leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated. Uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit. And then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we meet our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, and that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, and it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on what does it look like? Because I think a successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I talk to people, I'm mindful that the, the probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly Black women and certainly gay Black women, uh, you know, there are not a lot of us. Um, you know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka, so I'm fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so Black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a Black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a single effect of what other people are going to expect as Black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind. Um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the, expect, with the level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do Black communities experience and to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that, to saying, let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations, and we all know that that just goes back and forth and oftentimes based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the, the art of, of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, and I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not, in my my mind to convince people, but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves. I, I saw you on a post uh, with the Washington Post um, 
uh, interview and it, it, you were amazing. And it, it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said, because I could see all of that reflected in how you responded there. And um, make one other quick uh, comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job and then let them roll. And that's not always easy. Helping your employees learn new cloud skills helps your business become more agile, more resilient, and more secure. Not helping employees learn new cloud skills causes your business to become less agile, less resilient, less secure, less innovative, less profitable, and, well, ultimately less of a business. Don't become less of a business. Try Pluralsight and get your employees everything they need to learn new cloud skills. Learn more at Pluralsight.com vision. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you are sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online.